All righty. I think the only announcement that we have has to do with the Chafer Conference that is coming up in about three weeks, right? I think that's what it is. Today's the 14th, so the 28th. Yep, three weeks from now, we'll be in the middle of the Chafer Conference. So that's going to be good, and all of y'all who are interested in understanding a few things about the Bible, uh, a lot of backgrounds for the Old Testament, this is going to be uh, very, very informative. And I know that there are some people who are going to say, well, you know, this just some of these topics just don't seem like they are all that relevant to me or that I'm going to learn all that much and maybe over my head. Well, let me tell you, about 80% of what's going on in the daytime is is relatively new information that's been discovered and made available within the last 30 years. And none of us had any of this in seminary, and I've had to go through this material like five times because it's all new material. That's how you learn things. You don't learn things by seeing it one time and hearing it. Uh, not unless you just want pablum. So this is, uh, but I'll be referring to these things quite a bit. So if you want to have an understanding of what I'm going to be referring to, you need to be there. All right. So, how shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord. And that means that we need to admit or acknowledge our sin to Him in the privacy of silent prayer. And then instantly we know and we have the confidence that we are cleansed from all those sins and God has separated them from us as far as the east is from the west and he will bring them to mind no more. So let's bow our heads together and go to the throne of grace. Our Father, it's a great privilege that we have to come to your throne of grace because Jesus Christ completed the payment for sin at the cross, paid in full, so that that was visualized when the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom, symbolizing that the access to you was now open because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. Father, we pray for... Uh, Many people that we know, pastors that we know as they get older, aging problems, illnesses, uh, disease, Father, we pray for them. We pray that you would strengthen them. We know that there are a number of churches, too many to recount, that are looking for pastors, and we pray that you would uh, guide and direct and provide men to fill those pulpits as well as to provide young men who will recognize at an early age that they have the gift of pastor-teacher and are willing to devote their life uh, to uh, pursuing that objective and being well-qualified and and well-trained. And, Father, we pray for us that we might continue to run the race with endurance and that we may keep our eyes focused upon Jesus, knowing that every decision we make is ultimately a test of faith a test of whether we're going to choose divine viewpoint or human viewpoint, life or death. And, Father, we pray that you would challenge us uh, with all of these things as we study tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, tonight we come to the uh, last chapter in the saga of Samson. And this last chapter is rather long. And it it covers from... uh, uh, it has two episodes in it. It, co- it covers uh, 31 verses. And so tonight we're not going to get through all 31 because uh, there's a lot here. It's interesting background, interesting material. So what we're going to look at as we uh, wrap up is what the Bible teaches about testing because what we see all through Samson's life are these tests. Test for Samson, test for his parents, test for Delilah, test that God is bringing for Israel. And, of course, they've all failed. And we have tests. We need to understand the purpose and role of divine testing, so we'll look at that, and we'll just basically get 
through about the first four verses, but that sets the stage for what happens in the rest of the chapter. So we, what we have seen is these previous five judgeships, five individuals who God raised up as a judge, which is more of a combination military leader, civil leader, uh, than what we think of as someone who is in the courtroom. Uh, they had some decision-making to make. And the last one that we see is Samson, and it's a decline. We go from the best of the lot about whom nothing bad is said to the last about whom nothing good is said. And Samson is disobedient. He's rebellious towards his parents. He does not have respect for his parents. He is led by his lust of the sin nature and the lust of the eyes. And he totally ignores God. He ignores the vow that he has made as a, Nazar- as a uh, Nazarene and, uh, or excuse me, a Nazarite. And he is uh, a womanizer. And there's not just anything really outstanding that you can see until we get right to the end, I think. So we will look at that. Now, we are to be reminded that after the birth narrative of Samson in chapter 13, verses 1 through 24, then we're told uh, this is really the introductory verse to the rest of his life. It's, it's unfortunate they made the chapter division after this verse when it should be the chap- first verse of the next chapter. And the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him at Mahanadan, between Zorah and Eshtaol. That's his home area, so that's where he starts. But what we're going to find out tonight is he's about 40 to 45 miles from where home base is. And I think this comes as a result of what happens in verse 20 of chapter 15. That brackets the initial, um, his initial function as a judge. He's not an individual military leader. He is more of a bull in a china closet who stirs up trouble between the Jews, the Israelites, and the Philistines uh, so that the the Israelites won't be able to assimilate into the pagan culture of the, the Philistines. And last time when we came to the end of chapter 15, the concluding verse says, So he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines, and we expect this is the end. Okay, and then we're going to have a closing statement and go to the next episode. But that's not what happens. What happens after we come through this is that we are going to uh, start another episode which is centered not up in the area of of where he uh, lived, but it's about 40 to 45 miles away in Gaza. This is the same town that gives the Gaza Strip its name, which is an area that is now just probably one of the worst places on earth to live. So he is um, he's down in Gaza. So what's he doing down there? And it seems to me, the text doesn't say, but it allows for it, that what has happened between these opening events in his, in his life that we studied in chapters uh, 14 and 15, that... Uh, that some time goes by. That all happens within the first year or so of his judgeship. We're not told about anything that happens between then and chapter 16, which is the closing events of his judgeship. And in between, you have around 18-plus years of him continuing in the same vein, and he seems to have not gained any control over his lust patterns. There's no spiritual maturity. He is still as self-absorbed as he always was, and he is really a picture of the ongoing rebellion in Israel. It it goes, he is, uh, he's a representative of Israel. He is, as an individual, a type of Israel that just does everything's right uh, in their own eyes. And remember when we were looking at chapter uh, chapter 14, and he describes the fact that he's seen this woman that has stirred up his lust patterns, and he says at the end of verse 3 to his father, get her for me, 
for she pleases me well, which is in the New King James, a really unfortunate translation because the verb that is there is the same verb that is used in those two verses that describe the theme of this this book, that there was no God in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And the verb there is the same verb. That what What he is saying to his father is, she is right in my eyes. And by not translating it that way, in the English, you really lose the connection that uh, the writer is making, that he is a picture of Israel. He is an individual who is just uh, completely uh, self-absorbed, and he has his own ultimate ultimate authority. And so we see that, that this idea of moral relativism uh, the idea of rejecting God, it's not something new to our generation. It's not something new to postmodernism. It's not something new even to the church age. But man has really been this way ever since since uh, Adam and Eve, that in the garden, Eve looked at the fruit and she saw. See, there's that verb to see. It's her eyes. She saw that it was good. And so she ate it, that the lust of the eyes has been a problem ever since. Uh, what's interesting about this in terms of applying this to help us understand a little bit about how we as a Western civilization culture got to this point of of internalizing knowledge to where we become the ultimate authority in knowledge. Uh, I've been teaching on, on Monday nights in History of Doctrine, and we started off with the subject of authority. How did the how did the church understand the authority of Scripture uh, through the different uh, eras of church history? And when you come to uh, the the Enlightenment, what's what's really philosophically ideologically kicked off the Enlightenment was the uh, philosophical work of a Jesuit priest who was a mathematician, a uh, geometrist by the name of Rene Descartes. And he is trying to find a solid base upon which to ground knowledge. Now you may say, well, what does this have to do with what we're studying? It has a lot. Because these, the words for knowledge and for seeing and understanding Run. We'll, we'll, I've got a chart on this. It runs all the way through this this episode. It's really an emphasis that God is making on their faulty basis for knowledge. And what happens before Descartes is, generally speaking, under the uh, theocentric worldview, even of Roman Catholicism, the Judeo-Christian worldview, there is an understanding in Western civilization that our knowledge is dependent upon God's knowledge. God is omniscient. There, he is, it's infinite knowledge. We cannot grasp God's knowledge. And so it was always understood that somehow human knowledge is extremely, extremely limited, but what gives it a base is the fact that God's, it is, it is, a reflection, and a minute part of God's omniscience. And so in, up until roughly 1600, uh, the Western civilization understood because of the impact of Christianity that man's knowledge was dependent upon God's knowledge and that because it's dependent upon God's knowledge, there is an external absolute upon which our knowledge is based. Our knowledge is derivative knowledge. It is not autonomous. It is ultimately dependent on God, and it derives ultimately from God. But what happens when Descartes comes along is he is trying to find this base within philosophy where he can uh, can ground the certainty of knowledge. And so he begins with this principle that how do I know anything? How do I know I'm in this building? How do I know that those chairs are blue and not red? How do I know that you exist? How do I know that you're really there? Maybe all of this is just a figment of my imagination. So I can't really be sure that all of you exist, that this room exists, that this city exists, that this earth exists. It may all be a deception from some malevolent deity. 
How do I know anything is really there? That was his question. But then he has this aha moment because he says, I think. And because he has self-consciousness and he realizes that he is thinking, he says, I think, therefore I exist. That, that's what he meant when he wrote cogito ergo sum in the Latin, I think, therefore I am. What did he do? The earth shook when he did that. Civilization had an earthquake. Why? Because he said that knowledge now starts with inside my brain. It's not outside, externally based in God as an objective reality. It is based inside my brain. I learn to know things because it starts with me. And so this shift goes from outside to inside. Now, he doesn't carry that through to its logical conclusion, but over the subsequent generations, you have a number of philosophers who start pushing the consequences of that thought, running it out to its logical conclusion. And the end result is a guy by the name of Immanuel Kant. And in the history of ideas, they say that, that Kant has the philosophical version of the Copernican Revolution. Now, that means a lot to all of you, doesn't it? I can see everybody going, oh, yeah, I understand that, right? No, you don't. Okay, what, who's Copernicus? He was another person like Galileo, but through his use of astronomy, he was able to demonstrate that the earth was not the center of the solar system. That was the view because of the influence of of Aristotelian uh, physics, and that was just based on philosophy. It wasn't based on empiricism or any facts, but it was all built, and it was just a castle built in the air that didn't stand. And so everybody had come to believe that the earth is the center of the, of the universe and everything, the whole solar system, the moon, the sun, everything uh, revolves around the earth. But Galileo and then Copernicus came along. Copernicus said, no, the earth is not the center of the universe. The sun is the center. I mean, the, the earth is not the center of the solar system. The sun is the center of the solar system. So what did he do? He said he shifted the center of the solar system from the earth to the sun. In the same way, when Kant came along, he shifts like following Descartes' lead. He carries it through to a more logical conclusion, and that is that I really can't know anything objectively for sure. I know that I exist, but all I know is my perceptions of what I think exists. I don't really know things as they are. And with that, we lose objective knowledge. And now all knowledge is, is what? It's subjective. The, at the same time, following Kant's lead, you have a German theologian by the name of Friedrich Schleiermacher. And Friedrich Schleiermacher comes to the conclusion that if all of this enlightenment truth is real, then the Bible is not. But we can't live as if the Bible's not. So how do we know God exists? We can't prove it through, uh, through any kind of reason or empiricism. We have to feel it. We have to feel it. So the only way we can validate anything is through our emotions. Now, this is happening in the, you know, the dusty ivory towers at various universities, and it takes about 100 years for this to work itself out into movers and shakers of culture, and then it took about another 50 or 60 years before it started impacting the man on the street. But that's where we are today, is the average person on the street is a, is a influenced by Kierkegaard and Schleiermacher. They never heard of them. You never heard of them unless you're sitting in on my class on Monday night. But, but what does that tell you? That the average guy on the street thinks that he determines truth, and he determines it with his emotions and with his feelings. Well, that's really nothing new under the sun, because guess what Samson did? He's de determining what's right on the basis of how it makes him feel. So you see, the as, as Moody, Moody Monthly had a great cover years ago. Uh, I might have found that at one point. I need to go back and look for it. But it had a picture of an apple, and the apple's beautiful on the outside, but then a quarter of it is cut out, and the inside is rotten. And the heading was, New Age, Old Lie. 
See, we, Satan just reinvents his old lie over and over again, which is that man, God doesn't determine right and wrong. God doesn't determine what's right. You determine it. It's all inside you, and it's whatever makes you feel good. And that's where we are as, as a culture. So what we saw is that even in the context of the paganism of the ancient world, you still have this moral relativism. So the Spirit of the Lord is, is stirring up uh, Samson to be the troublemaker. And so the Spirit of the Lord moves him, and this is a map. Keep this in your thinking. Over here, the blue on the left is the Mediterranean Sea. The land here, this is called the Shephelo. This is the coastal plain in Israel. And all this little shaded area here is topographical, represent the increasing hills and the more rugged the terrain gets. And so this is the area here, Eshtel and Zora. This is where, where, where Samson's from. This is home base. But that's not where we find ourselves uh, when we get down to uh, get down here. We get down to Ash, down to Gaza. See, that's a long way. Everything up to this point has been right around the, the home neighborhood, and now he's all the way down here. This is some forty plus miles from home. What's he doing down there? Well, see, I think that what has happened here is that things have gone... I don't know what happened here. This is not what I made earlier. Maybe I just left something out. Okay, I did. I didn't delete those. Okay, so what we see is... in Samson is an illustration in the Old Testament of what John says in First John. All that is in the world... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not the fa- of the Father, but is of the world. So that's the conflict. The sin nature, the lust of the flesh, the f- sin nature, the flesh here refers to that, that sin nature, that capacity of disobedience and sin that is in every f- human being. And it produces all kinds of lust. And it is awakened through what we see and it produces an arrogance in life. Okay, so what happens now in Judges 16.1, now Samson went to Gaza. So the question is, what's he doing down there? Well, the writer doesn't tell us. The writer doesn't tell us at all. In fact, when we look at this, there's a lot of unanswered questions. And there's a principle, I don't think I've mentioned it or brought it out lately, but there is an important principle that we have to understand in, in, in Scripture. And that is that God tells us what we need to know. He doesn't tell us what we want to know. And so we can read through this and say, I've got all kinds of questions. How did he get to Gaza? Uh, has he been doing this for a long time, going down there to see a prostitute? And we have many other questions in these first three verses, but God doesn't give us all the details. He's not there to satisfy our prurient interests and to satisfy our curiosity and give us all the details. He tells us just enough in a very brief three-verse account because he's setting the stage for something. The first part, there are two divisions to chapter 16, and they are the first three verses, which is uh, Samson's Samson's uh, adventure with the gate in Gaza. And then from 4 to 31, the focus is on um, the focus is on the episode with Delilah, which ends up in Gaza. Okay, so what do these two ep- what do these two parts of this chapter have in common? Gaza. Not that not that was not a trick question. Okay, we, we, we don't have to make, make it real difficult. So, so that's what happens. The central figure is Samson. The place that this happens is in Gaza, which is all the way down along, along the coast. And the other key person who's nameless is the prostitute. Now, that's interesting because up until we get, to, uh, uh, get down to verse 6, no woman in the Samson narrative 
is named. Why is that? The author is showing us that women had become irrelevant in a pagan culture. That they weren't valued as they should have been, and they were they were abused. Now, what we have, it, it, if you don't have any any teaching from the Word of God, where you understand that God created man and woman equally in the in God's image, and that they are ontologically equal to one another, and that uh, the uh, authority difference, the, the leadership roles that God assigns, have nothing to do with the, the um, uh, integrity of the individual in the sense of being truly human and truly, truly equal with one another. Think about the Trinity. In the Trinity, you have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Are they equal to one another? Absolutely equal to one another. Are they subordinate? The Son is subordinate to the Father, and the Holy Spirit is subordinate to the, Holy, to the Son and the Father. So if you come along as a feminist and you say subordination means you're not equal, what have you done? You've committed blasphemy against the Trinity. You have demonstrated and made it clear that you're really attacking the Christian view of God because only in a triune, with a triune God, do you have absolute equality between the three members of the Godhead but you also have subordination that does not mean inequality. But what happens in paganism, because of their uh, philosophical rejection of, uh, of a triune uh, God as a starting point, they always end up with nothing but a straight line. The male is not only, in, is, is not only the, the head of the woman, but he is superior to the woman. That's not biblical. So what happens is you get feminism always reacts against, oh, the Bible's just full of all that patriarchy. And they never go a step further to see that the Bible has two levels of patriarchy. They have a God-ordained patriarchy where the male and the female are equal, but there is a, 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 a difference in responsibilities. There's different roles. Different roles does not mean that they are um, they are less equal. You look at any any sports team. You have players that have different roles, and a quarterback cannot do what a center does or or, or or what a guard does. But the guard can't do what the quarterback can do. They have different roles, but they're both equal and vital to the team. And that's what you that that's depicted, or that's a a reflection of the Trinity, three totally equal persons with different roles. And different roles does not mean they're less equal or less important. They just have different roles. And so what happens is you have in, in Judges, the writer is pointing this out, the mother's not named, uh, the girl from Timnah is not named, uh, this prostitute is not named, Women are just there as, as far as Samson is concerned, as sort of window dressing to satisfy his, his lust. And, of course, he doesn't have lust for his mother, but he has no respect for her, and he's disrespectful of her the whole time. And so what you need to think through, because of where we're going in Judges, is that when you start without the God of the Bible, you're going to end up completely confusing sexual identities, I never use the word gender. You get confused on who men are and who women are. Because if you don't have God to tell you who men and women are, then you're just making it up as you go along like you make up everything else because truth is what's inside me. And it's what makes me feel good. And it just makes me feel... I got up this morning and I put a dress on and I put on makeup and I just felt so good and so womanly, right? Makes you want to barf. It's, it, it shows that, that as a culture, we are degenerated into a mass psychosis. Just take a look at who is in the upper echelons of the cabinet 
and not just the cabinet members, but their second and third level of assistance of what we've seen in the Biden administration. You know, it was a decision two years ago, Trump or Biden, and a lot of people said, I just don't want somebody who's going to have tweets, nasty tweets. So this is what you get, the promotion of gender confusion. Not that Trump was all that hot, but he was a whole lot better than what we got in a lot of ways. And um, and that's not justifying a lot of ways that he wasn't, but let me tell you, it was a difference between bad and worse. Okay. So, Samson goes to Gaza. He's following the lust of his eyes, and he goes there. Notice the verb, to see. In Scripture, this is related to knowledge. So, so there's this emphasis here on, on seeing and knowledge and what he sees and what he feels uh, that that is that that is what is absolute for him. A um, couple of things we should observe, though, as we go through these these uh, opening passages, there is in these three verses there is absolutely no reference to the Spirit of God coming upon Samson. He carries the gate of Gaza forty-five miles uphill to Hebron. It weighed a minimum of two hundred pounds, maybe three or four hundred pounds. There's no mention of the Spirit of God coming upon him. The Spirit of God isn't mentioned. God is not mentioned again until you get into the Delightful episode. It was mentioned previously when the Spirit of God came on him uh, with the uh, uh, jawbone of a jackass. I don't know who the jackass was, the bone of the jackass or Samson, but it applies to both. It's a double entendre. Second thing we notice is there's no editorial comment by the writer about this. He just reports it. Here are the facts, boom, 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 and moves on. He doesn't give any nuance to it or any any opinion. And then there's some other things that are unclear in the passage. Uh, in verse 2 it says, When the Gazites were told, Samson's here, they surrounded and the 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 place is not in the original. That's not in the Hebrew. If you look at your text in your Bible, uh, the place is in italics. They surrounded something. Uh, the NET Bible set, puts in the town, but we're not told what they surrounded. So we're left with the question, what did they surround? Did they surround the house where the prostitute was? Or did they surround the uh, town? Or did they surround um, uh, just the gate area? And so they have a plan. They're going to set up an ambush. They're going to set up an ambush, and they are going to get uh, Samson. Why? By this time, Samson isn't just a local problem over here in the area around Timnah. He is now a national problem for all of the Philistines for the five cities because the the lords of the Philistines, the five lords of the Philistines, the Pentapolis, the five cities, they all get involved in this. And so that shows us that this is a national problem. Samson's come here, they say. So they're going to lay in wait. They're going to set up an ambush. And they say they're going to be quiet. And in the morning, we'll kill him. Will murder him, probably is how it should be translated. Okay, so that's the situation. Now, the next verse comes along and introduces us to this concept of the gate of the city. Okay, and we read in the um, well, that's in verse back in verse two. Um, Samson's come, they surround the place, lay in wait from all night at the gate of the city. Now, what is significant about a gate of the city? The gate of the city is a complex affair. It's not just, you know, a door with a hinge on it, and you can come in and go out like the gate on your fence in your backyard. This is a mammoth thing. So this is a sketch of a diagram that fits the gates that we've discovered in numerous uh, tells that's a archaeological dig in in Israel. So here you had the entry, and at Gaza there were these uh, apparently swinging door double gates. They're big and they're heavy. They're tall. They're probably between fifteen and twenty feet tall. 
and they're heavy, they're massive, because you want to keep an invading army out. So this is part of the city's defense. And so inside the gate, you have these areas that are um, rooms where the guards would sit, where they would have their, their armament and their weapons and everything. And in most of them, there's either four or six of these guard rooms. So if you have two guards per guard room, you've got, and you've got six guard rooms, you've got 12 guards there. The question that isn't answered in the text, how does Samson get around the guards to get to the gate? We don't know. Did God put him to sleep? Did Samson put him to sleep? Long sleep. The big sleep. We don't know. So that's what an ancient gate looked like in just a diagram or a chart. Now, this is one that uh, is at the gate at at Megiddo. And this was a fortified, this was a military city on a trading post, so it was probably a much larger gate affair than what you had in Gaza. But I've got nice pictures of this and no pictures of the Gaza gate because that doesn't exist anymore. And so what we see here, this is the artist's diagram. This is taken from a from a uh, picture they have sitting there right by the trail as you get ready to walk into the remains here. And what's interesting here is you would go in one gate complex and see you have a, a guard complex here and a guard complex here and another one over here and another one over here. And then you go through a second gate up here. Notice you have to go in and then make a right angle turn to the left uh, to go through the gates. If you are in charge of a military attack on this gate, you can't just run straight through and you're in the city. You've got to do a dog leg in the middle, and that's going to slow you down, and you're underneath the high walls all around so you can be trapped. So it was designed as, as being very defensible in the military. Now, this is how high those gates are, or at least the remains. So uh, in the middle of the picture there is uh, uh, Jeremy Thomas, and so you can see how tall these gates are. Jeremy's a little short, so he's probably about 5'8 or so. But you can see these are well over 12, and this isn't necessarily the top as it was in the, in the ancient world. And so there I am giving you another shot at how, how high these, these gates were. So the gate that Samson is hauling is going to be quite large and, consequent quite heavy. So here's another picture showing uh, the after you make the left turn going going straight straight in I believe. So that's the ancient ancient gate, and we're told in verse three that Samson lay low until midnight, and then he arose at midnight and took hold of the doors, both doors of the gate. That's got to be extremely heavy. Now, how did he know to do that? Did he? Did somebody tell him that there was this ambush that was going to be there? Did somebody uh, come and warn him? We have no idea. Did God tell him? It doesn't say. God's not mentioned. We don't know how he knew that a trap and an ambush was set for him. So he lay, lays low till midnight. Then he arose, took hold of the doors of the gate of the city, and the two gate posts pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders without help. He didn't have somebody up on the wall saying, okay, let me hoist this up on your back for you. He puts both of them on his back and carries them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. So he's higher than Hebron. Okay, so what do we see here? We see that, first of all, that the gates would have two rings that attached them to the posts, and they turned on the pins in those uh, rings. And so he takes the pins out, and he has to hold up the gate while he's doing that, and he takes the, the gate down, uh, and he does all of this with his bare hands without any help from anyone. So he's not only strong, but he has a lot of dexterity as well. Uh, second, the bar that goes across was thick and heavy, ran across the whole length of the two gates. 
the width of the principal gate could be as much as 13 to 14 feet wide. Think about that. How much, how heavy, it's for defensive purposes, so they're going to make it heavy. So it's hard to take down. And he's able to pull all this up with his bare hands, put it on his shoulders, and then he carried the gates about 40 miles to Hebron, which is going from sea level at Gaza to 2,500 feet at the hill outside of Hebron. That's a nice hike. That looks like a CrossFit exercise. He made the cover of Wheaties that year. All right. So this is, this is what he does, and that's all we know about this. Now, we learn a few things from this. We learn, first of all, that, that Samson, uh, I don't know why I put four in there. Samson continued to fraternize with the enemy. He doesn't have any scruples about going into the Philistine towns and fraternizing with the enemy and fraternizing with the enemy's women. He still is doing the same things he was doing when he got started. Second, we've seen that he has become a national target, and they want him. They're going to put a price on his head when we get into the main part of this, and the price on his head is 5,500 shekels. Now, that doesn't mean a whole lot to you. But considering the highest number of, of you know, funds that we see being offered for different things like this is around 1,000, anywhere in the early part of the, of the Old Testament. This is five times that amount. I'll have a breakdown of all of these uh, next time. So he's a national enemy. He's going to have a price on his head, and he's 45 miles from home. What's he doing so far away? So this is this serves as an introduction to the Delilah episode. Now, when you read through this, if you read through too fast, you're just going to miss it. You're just reading. Blah, blah, blah. So he goes to Gaza, and then he goes to see Delilah. And you read them as, as separate events, and they are. But why does the writer connect them together? Because th- these three verses give us the backdrop to by asking these questions to see how far Samson has gone in his compromise with the enemy and how his role as the bull in the china closet has now gone from being a local problem to being a national problem for the Philistines. And they really want to get him. Now, another thing that we see that begins to develop that goes through this whole chapter is that there's an emphasis on knowing. When we read in the Scripture, the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the whole earth looking for a man that is humble, basically. What do we have? We have an idiom. He's looking, but it relates to knowledge. And so when we have verbs of seeing, they relate to knowledge. So we have a lot of these verbs. Look at this. We have the main word for to see is the Hebrew word ra'ah, and that's in verse 5 and again in verse 18. Then we have the word uh, higid, which is the hifil of nagad, which means to tell or to declare. In verse 6, 10, 13, 15, 17, 18, we have all this. And yada, which is the main word to know. So uh, then we come to uh, Deber, uh, Kezavim, uh, to declare falsehood. That is literally, it means to lead away from knowledge. And then the word talal for to deceive, which is in verse 10, verse 13, verse 15. So all through this section, you have these words that relate to, to knowledge and seeing what happens at the end of the episode. Anybody know? The Philistines put his eyes out. This is ironic. The man who says, I want the woman because she looks good to my eyes, loses his eyesight. Now, up to this point, I think that we haven't seen something that has been, uh, that would reflect credibly on Samson's spirituality. 
But I think that changes when he can't see. He begins to see God. That's just a hint. We'll get to that next time. So then we look at the first two verses in the Delilah episode. Afterward, that is, some time goes by, not a lot of time, but some time, maybe a few months. Afterward, it happened that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek. Maybe if I were translating this, I would say he lusted after a woman in the valley of Sorek, because that's his pattern. Now, we're going to have to ask a couple of questions here. What's the significance of the valley of Sorek? And then we have a shock whose name was Delilah. We're told her name. That hasn't happened yet. Why is she named and no other woman is named? And then in verse 5 we're told, And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Entice him, in other words, set a trap, and find out where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to afflict him, and every one of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver, which comes out to about 5,500 shekels. So we'll look at that uh, when we get there uh, next time. But we want to talk a little bit first about what's going on on here. Uh, One of the things that we see is, uh, for example, in verse 15, she says to... to, um, Samson, she starts twisting him in a way that uh, many women will will try to manipulate a man. And, and it's really important to understand what happens here because a lot of men just fall for this very easily. How can you say you love me? You say you love me, but you don't do this. You say you love me, but you don't do that. And whatever it is she wants you to do or not do is not something you should really do. So how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times and have not told me where your great strength lies. So she starts off with this phrase, how can you say? And, you know, there's an interplay that goes on uh, throughout this uh, episode with Samson about these riddles. And he's kind of toying with her. And part of what the writer is pointing out, we'll develop this a little more next time, is that Samson has become a riddle to the Philistines. They can't figure him out. They're trying to get her to figure him out. But they can't figure figure him out. Uh, but the subtext here is the writer, by way of using this, is showing that 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 God has become an enigma to the and a riddle to the Jews. They don't know who God is. So there's a certain interplay that that goes on in in these kinds of situations. So we see here that uh, this woman is from the Valley of Sorek. So this is uh, the occasion for what happens in the rest of the chapter, that he loved a woman who is in this valley. Now, what do we know about Sorek? Sorek was the name of a wadi. A wadi is in... um, American English, an intermittent stream. That means it's mostly dry, but when it rains, it floods. And then it'll dry out again. So it runs from the hill country of Judah down to the Mediterranean coast. So let me go back where we can see a map. There, there's a map. Okay, so it's one of these wadis that's running down... Uh, this way, okay? We don't know where, uh, which one it was, but it, it may be even this one down here, the, which is the Wadi Shachma. And um, it runs down uh, to the coast, and which has, shows us that Samson is looking eastward, not westward. See, where did he carry the gate? He carried the gate to Hebron. That's way over here. He's looking westward toward Judah. He's in Judah up at Hebron. He's looking toward his people. So the writer is kind of indicating, well, is he going to turn turn his focus on his people? No, he doesn't. He turns his focus in the opposite uh, direction. And so he is. his sights are set on the Philistines. He's always attracted to them, not on his, not on his own people. So... 
everything he looks to for significance is is to the west. And so it's down that valley that we see uh, Samson Samson looking. He's not up here in Zora focusing on his hometown. He's looking over into the uh, into the Philistine community. Then we have the name Delilah. Okay, we have the name Delilah. What does that mean? Well, there are several different views. Etymologically, the most likely explanation is it's related as a cognate to an Arabic word, Dala, which means to flirt. So some suggest that it is a, a title that indicates her flirtatious uh, nature. And so this would um, indicate some allusion to the fact that, that uh, Samson is... Uh, is going to be um, uh, vulnerable to her flirtations, but there's another way, another word that, that meaning to this word is that is I think is probably maybe more on target. We can't be sure, but that its root has the idea of a devotee, someone who is a servant of a god, who's devoted to a god. And in this case, it would show that her name could be linked to the fertility goddess Ishtar. And so this might suggest that she is a temple prostitute, and so that she's uh, someone that that the Philistine leaders would go to to try to seduce uh, Samson. So what this does is it brings up the fact that this is going to be a test for... Delilah, as well as a test for Samson. First of all, we see that the Philistine lords test Delilah. They want to, are you loyal to the Philistines or are you Samson's lover? A second test is that Delilah is going to test Samson. Does he love her or is he just teasing her? And uh, this, it, this question from her becomes a trap for Samson. And third, Yahweh is testing Samson. Will he be true to his Nazarite vow? And we see this that comes out when he finally tells her what what his source of his strength is in verse 17. He told her all his heart and said to her, No razor has ever come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God. That's the first mention of God, but it's not Yahweh, it's Elohim. From my mother's womb, if I'm shaven, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak or like any other man. So there is a test there uh, for Samson's loyalty to God. Uh, A fourth test is that Yahweh is going to test Dagon in verses 23 to 30. Can Dagon really protect his people? A fifth test is Samson tests God. Will God intervene at the end to defend Samson? at the end of his life. So almost every speech that we find in this is a test of some sort. So we need to ask the question, well, what does the Bible teach about testing? This affects all of us. It wasn't just Samson. Every decision we make in life, just about. Now, if you're going to get up in the morning and say, well, am I going to wear blue or brown? That's not the kind of test we're talking about. But certain decisions, especially if they involve... Uh, some sort of ethical behavior or a test. Are we going to do it God's way or man's way? And 1 Corinthians, there are two passages that are foundational to understanding testing, and they're in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 13, and in James 1, 2 through 4. And let's just go to the end verse in 1 Corinthians and then we'll know where we're headed when we go back to verse verse 1. No temptation. And that should be read as no testing. See, you have these two words that show up. Temptation here and in the second to last line uh, translates the noun pirasmas, which can be translated temptation or test. Uh, a temptation is something that entices us and draws us, and we think of that negatively as a temptation to sin, 
But it's a test. Are you going to, you're going to start your diet today? Well, are you going to have that donut for breakfast or not? That's a test. Or are you going to stick to it at least for the first 30 minutes that you're awake? And that's the idea. No testing, no temptation, no test has overtaken you except such as is. And it usually, it doesn't use the phrase common to man. It is, it's, that is, we, you know, we could say that is humanly. That is, and it has that idea that it is characteristic of humanity. But God is faithful. See, that God is faithful even in the testing and won't allow you to be tested beyond what you are able. Now, a lot of people read that and they think, oh, you know, I just carry so much. God must really think I'm capable of a lot. Well, that's just an arrogant interpretation, not what it means at all. The ability comes from, A, God the Holy Spirit, and B, the Word of God. God has given us through the Holy Spirit and the Word of God the ability to handle anything. That's what that means. So it's not like, oh, you know, God must think I'm a mature Christian to be able to handle all this. No, no, get out of your arrogance trap. Um, so we're, he will not allow us to be tempted beyond our ability because his grace is sufficient for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. But with the temptation will also make the way to escape, not so you can get away from it, but that you can endure it. See, there's no escape hatch here other than that you can handle it. It's a 10 spiritual skills so that you can handle it and sail right through it with peace, stability, and joy. So what's the context for this? Well, let's back it up to verse 1. The first test, all these tests have to do with the Exodus generation, the Exodus and the Exodus generation. And the first has to do with getting across the Red Sea. And that's stated in verse 1 where Paul writes, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers, and by that he's referring to the Jewish progenitors at the time of the Exodus, all our fathers were under the cloud and passed through the sea. The cloud refers to the pillar cloud that symbolized the divine presence that led them through the uh, out to the Red Sea and then across. And so it is divine guidance. They were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. The test is that they've got the Egyptian army right behind them that wants to annihilate them, and they've got their backs up against the Red Sea. But uh, Moses had faith, obeyed God, touched the water with his staff, and the water separated, and the ground dried out instantly. Second thing the test we see is comes comes in verse verse 2 uh, the end of verse 1 is that they all passed through the red sea and then they were all baptized that is identified into Moses his faith identified with Moses by means of the cloud and by means of the sea this is a dry baptism the only ones who got wet were in the egyptian army Okay, then we see that they, the next test was, was a test of, of hunger. And they were fed with the miraculous manna, according to Exodus chapter 16, verses 4 and 5. This is verse 3. They all ate the same spiritual food. Then the next test came with water. You're out in the desert, and there's no water. Uh, you've got to trust God to provide your water. See, God's grace is always sufficient. He provided food and he provided water. Now, he didn't provide the food that was in the hottest restaurant in town, and he didn't find the greatest uh, a bottled water that everybody is going after and buying their smart water with all of their foolish money. So you have all drank the same spiritual drink, and that it was another test. So God's grace is sufficient in providing for them. And we're told that there's something significant about the water. It was uh, the water that God provided. They drank of the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Okay, so that defines the type for us from the Old Testament. So they drank the miraculous water. That was Exodus 17:6, And then, um, then we're told, 
in verse 5 that they all did a great job, passed the test. Is that what we read? No. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. That's a little more than just not being well pleased. They were brought under divine discipline, and they never saw the promised land. Now, we're told in verse 6 then, now these things became our examples. Guess what? That's repeated again in verse 11. This, that happened so that you'd pay a lot of attention, read those stories over and over again, and learn from those examples. These things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Now, how did that manifest itself? Verse 7, it manifests itself as sexual immorality in Exodus. Verse 8 says, nor let us commit sexual immorality. I skipped verse 7. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play, which is an euphemism for sexual activity. And so that is reported in Exodus chapter 32, verse 6, which says, Then they rose early on the next day. Moses is up on the mountain getting the uh, uh, Mosaic law. They got up early the next day, offered burnt offerings to the golden calf, and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They had an orgy at, at the foot of Mount Sinai that just went on for days. And um, and the result is that there's divine divine discipline. Verse 8 says, Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. That's a separate event that shows up in Numbers uh, 25, 1 and 2. This was the result of the false prophet Balaam, who told the king of the, of the Moabites, if you really want to get them to compromise, send all the temple prostitutes into uh, in, into their army, and they will seduce all those men, and uh, they'll just fall apart. And so uh, then there was Phineas, who was the high priest, and he called for the Levites to stand with him. And that day he slaughtered twenty-three thousand of his of his fellow Israelites because they had compromised with these uh, pros- uh, r- ritual prostitutes uh, uh, from the Moabites. And so uh, they're, they're punished. And as a result of that, Phineas was given a covenant uh, with, by God that the priesthood would not leave his line. That's another covenant. We usually don't talk about that when we talk about covenants, but that's another covenant that's in the Old Testament. So then we see a reference in verse 9 to another event when they're going through the wilderness and they're grumbling and complaining, and God sends these fiery serpents among them. And verse 9 says, nor let us tempt Christ. Notice how you do, Jesus is spoken of as being there in the wilderness. Does tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by the serpents. Okay, so that was another test. And then we come to verse 10 and we have another test. And that is because Paul says over in Ephesians um, 5 that we're not to be grumblers or complainers and some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer so they failed a lot of tests and then we're told again in verse 11 now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall and then we have Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you as such as is common to man. See, they had all those same kind of tests all the way through that Exodus generation, and most of them failed. You will not be allowed, God will not allow you to be tested above your ability, but with the temptation or with the test will make the way of escape. He will provide endurance for you that you may be able to bear it, that you may be able to hold up under it. Now, this is the same thing we see when we get over to James uh, 1, 2 through 4, where James starts the epistle with what the whole point of the epistle is. He says, Brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, 
and endurance will have its maturing work that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Lacking nothing means God's going to be sufficient for you. So these are the promises that we have. And by utilizing the promises, we're able to endure the tests. And that's what we need to do. So what we've seen tonight is that, that the chapter uh, chapter 16 starts off with this strange episode of, of Samson in Gaza. But it's to sort of connect the dots between chapter 15 and chapter, uh, chapter 16 as uh, Samson is now some 18, 19 years older and still the uh, lusty man that he was when he was younger, uh, still not giving credit to God, still not focusing on the Lord, and he's going down to Gaza a long way from home where he shouldn't be, and instead of causing trouble for the Philistines, he's going down there to see a prostitute. And and then he somehow hears that there's going to be an ambush, and he goes out and he just rips the gates off of their hinges and carries the gates all the way to Hebron. And then he just goes back, and then he, apparently somewhere in there, his eyes land on Delilah, and the lust of the eyes comes into play. And so that sets the, that sets the stage. But what we see is a man who, just like Israel, test after test after test, failure after failure after failure. But God's grace is sufficient for him, but he's not relying upon it. But we have God's grace, and we can rely upon it if we will. And that's what these promises from First Timothy, First uh, Corinthians ten thirteen, and James two, uh, one two through four are all about. Is we need to trust in the Lord and do what Scripture says to do, and God will uphold us and strengthen us in the midst of whatever tests, temptations that we are enduring. But we have to look to Him. Doesn't mean it's easy. It's not magic. But it is the way in which God has designed to mature us so that we can uh, grow and be more able to serve him. Father, thank you for this time to look at these, these events in Samson's life, relate them to our own culture, relate them to our own thinking and uh, individually as we face and deal with a culture that is just giving itself over uh, to complete self-absorption, to uh, being completely divorced from reality. And we have to be honest that too often we are impacted by that culture. It affects the way we think. And we need to learn to turn from it and not be like Samson and the Israelites assimilating to the easy path with the pagans around us, but standing firm on your word and on your truth. We pray that that might be true for us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.